All right, welcome everybody. I'm glad you're here. We're, uh, we're doing a four-week series in the book of Romans chapter 8, and Romans chapter 8 is arguably the one of the best chapters in the Bible because it's the whole Bible really in one chapter. 39 verses has some of the most incredible promises of God. We're calling this series Vision, Seeing and Savoring God's Promises in Romans 8. You'll remember, if you can flip the slide, if you'll remember that last week we kind of used this image of Haru Anoda to talk about this chapter. If you remember last week, Haru Anoda was a Japanese soldier who went to fight with the Japanese Imperial Army in the Philippines in 1944. Well, the, the war ended in 1945, and it was over. And everyone stopped fighting except Haru Anoda. And Haru Anoda stayed in the jungles of the Philippines, and I'm not lying, you can look it up, 30 years. 30 years. He stayed in the jungles of the Philippines. He refused to believe that the war was over. Something was being held out for him to embrace and grasp on for himself, and he held out. He held out. He couldn't grasp onto it. He couldn't believe that it was true. And, and what was amazing is people knew he was out there. He sort of became famous. People were looking for him. People would write pamphlets of information and drop them out in the jungle that said, hey, buddy, the war's over. And he could not believe it. He could not embrace it for himself. He could not accept that this promise that the war over, war was over was true. And I want you to think of yourself as Haru Anoda because God has some awesome promises that he's holding out for you in Romans chapter 8. And the question to you is, are you going to grasp onto them? They're yours. They're true. God has made them effective in Christ. Are you going to make them your own, or are you going to hold out? As we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13 today, we're going to look specifically at the promise of freedom. The promise of freedom. I'm going to ask Ellie to come up. Ellie's agreed to read in English for us. There is therefore no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for, for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you to your mortal bodies through this his spirit who dwells in you. So then... Brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen. Ozzy's going to come up and read for us in Spanish. Por tanto, no hay ninguna condenación para los que están unidos a Cristo. Jesús, que no, uh, para Cristo Jesús, los que no andan conforme a la carne, sino conforme al Espíritu. Porque la ley del Espíritu de la vida en Cristo Jesús me ha librado de la ley del pecado y de la muerte. Porque Dios ha hecho lo que para la ley era imposible hacer, debido a que era débil por su naturaleza pecaminosa. Por causa del pecado, envió a su Hijo en una condición semejante a la del hombre pecador. Y de esa manera condenó al pecado en la carne, para que la justicia de la ley se cumpliera en nosotros, que no seguimos los pasos de nuestra carne, sino los del Espíritu. Porque los que siguen los pasos de la carne fijan su atención en lo que es de la carne, pero los que son del Espíritu la fijan en lo que es del Espíritu. Porque el ocuparse de la carne es muerte, pero el, ocupar, el ocuparse del Espíritu es vida y paz. Las intenciones de la carne llevan a la enemistad contra Dios, porque no se sujetan a la ley de Dios, ni tampoco pueden. Además, los que viven según la carne no pueden agra agradar a Dios. Pero ustedes no viven según las, in las intenciones de la carne, sino según el Espíritu. Si sí, es que el Espíritu de Dios habita en ustedes. Y si alguno no tiene el Espíritu de Cristo, no es de él. Pero si Cristo está en ustedes, el cuerpo está en verdad muerto a causa del pecado. Pero el Espíritu vive a causa de la justicia. Y si el Espíritu de Aquel que levantó de los muertos a Jesús vive en ustedes, el que levantó de los muertos a Cristo Jesús también dará vida a sus cuerpos mortales por medio del Espíritu que vive en ustedes. Así que, hermanos, tenemos una deuda pendiente, pero no es la de vivir en conformidad con la carne, porque si ustedes viven en conformidad con la carne, morirán. Pero si dan muerte a las obras de la carne por medio del Espíritu, entonces vivirán. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word and we ask that you'd use us, use it in us now, that it would change us, that it would show us more about ourselves and more about you, and that your Spirit would be present here now. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine with me just for a moment I want you to imagine what it would be like if God were king of this city. What would it be like if God were the king of our city? What would be different? What would be different if God were king of our city? Would, would, would the legislation change? Would the way that people relate to one another change? Would the way that, or who they relate to, would that change? Would there be more of a sense of love in our city? What about your neighborhood? If God were king of our city, what would look different in your neighborhood? Would there be more of a concern for those who have nothing to offer anybody else? A concern for the poor and the vulnerable? Would there be more of a sense of justice and setting things right for the fatherless and widows and orphans if God were king? What about on your street? 
What about on your street? If God were king of the city, what would be different on your street? You know, uh, your neighbors, you get this thing going called elitism, where you look down the street and you're like, well, at least we're not bad as those guys. Or maybe that's the way that they think about you. Would that happen if God were king? Or would there be more of a sense of God's love over us and in us and through us if he were king of our city? Jeremiah 9 gives us a little bit of a, of a window into what it might look like if God were the king of our city. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, one of my favorite scriptures says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If God were king, it might look a little bit like what Jeremiah says in chapter 9. First of all, that people's reference point is God. It doesn't matter how much money they have. It doesn't matter how smart they are. It doesn't matter who they know or how much power they have. That's all secondary compared to knowing God. Their boast of their heart is that I know God and God knows me and he's my center. God not only rules the city, their neighborhood, and their street, but God rules their heart. God rules their heart. But then secondly, not only is knowing God their reference point, But God's agenda becomes everyone else's agenda. So God cares about love being manifested. So everyone says, we want to care about love. God says, I care about justice. So we want to care about justice. I care about righteousness and kindness. So we want to care about that too. If God were king of our city, there'd be more love and justice and righteousness expressed on our streets. So here's the thing. God actually is king of our city. God actually is king of our city. We can imagine what it's like, but he is ruler and he is in charge of all things. All things are subject to him. He is over all things, and his desire has always been to fill the earth with his character, to spread righteousness and love and justice and goodness and mercy throughout the earth. And his character is expressed when he makes laws. When God makes laws, it's all about his character. God doesn't do busy work. He doesn't give you rules just because he's bored. He gives you rules and laws because he wants you to live out who he is. And so he makes rules based on righteousness. If you look in the Old Testament, it says things like, be righteous in the courtroom. Don't show favoritism to anybody in the courtroom. Be righteous in your decisions. Because God is righteous. God also makes lots of rules about justice that protect the poor, that protect the widow and the orphan. Not because he likes making lots of rules, but because he wants his character of justice to be expressed in real life. And love. I mean, God is love, right? So all of God's laws have to do with love. And if you want to look at it later, you can look at Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 has a whole bunch of rules, but it's all framed in this idea that God is love. 
and that he wants us to love our neighbor. And so he says things like, don't hate your neighbor. Don't lie to your neighbor. If you're a farmer, when you gather your crops, leave some crops on the ground so that the poor who are traveling through your fields will have something that they can pick up and eat. And God says that this is what it means to love our neighbor. And God connects loving our neighbor to loving him. So you can't love your neighbor without loving God, and you can't love God without loving your neighbor. And I mean, that's what the law is all about, right? Loving God and loving neighbor. And God ends that chapter in Leviticus 19 by saying something like, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as you do yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if we're honest, we're okay with loving God and loving neighbor until it gets to that point where it says, as yourself. Because then we begin to realize, well, we really like the idea that God is manifesting his love in this world. But as soon as he says to us and gives us a law, love your neighbor as yourself, all of a sudden we're sunk. We're sunk. Because I've never met anybody who loves the person next to him like you love yourself. In fact, we love ourselves as we love ourselves. You know, even if we don't like ourselves, we still think about ourselves all the time and we have pity on ourselves and we, we just, we're so self-focused. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. And give you a few examples of things I've seen in my own heart that I have a deep sense and need to preserve myself, but not you. <laughs> Look, when I get some extra money, my first thought is, how can I spend this money on my own comfort rather than something that you might actually need? You ever do that? You spend money, get a little extra money, and you spend something on yourself that you don't really need, but it makes you comfortable when someone right next to you needs something. God expects us to follow his laws, whether they're laws about righteousness or justice or mercy, or kindness. God expects us to obey his commands. That's why Micah 6.8 says, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does God require of you but to love mercy, and to do justice, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, we love that verse, but we don't follow that verse. I mean, we, we, we see little inklings of it in our life, but we fall drastically short of actually living that out and actually doing that. And the reason is, is we like the idea of love, but we don't like the idea of law. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. As soon as God imposes something over us, we want to get that off of us. But, but there's still a longing in us that we see the goodness of what God is trying to accomplish through giving us commands but we're hostile at the same time. We hide it well, though. Religious folks, here's what religious folks do. Religious folks look at God's law and they say, I can do that. I can follow that. In fact, the more I follow it, the better I am. But inevitably, what religious folks will end up doing is leaving out parts of the law that they can't do. Parts of the law that they can't accomplish on their own. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees could tie their spices, man, but they missed the big picture. 
they missed things about righteousness and justice. And so they, they, they were doing all these little things that they could do with their own hands, but they were oppressing people because they shrunk the law down and picked and choose the things that they wanted. And that's what religious people do. But irreligious people do something else. Irreligious people say, I don't want law. I just want to love. I just want goodness. I just want mercy. But that doesn't work either. Because the law is about love and goodness and mercy. And you're rejecting the very thing that you say that you want. See, we have a sense of longing there for God's character, but, but we reject his law. We buck it because we don't want it. And the reason why the Bible says is because deep in our hearts, you and I are desperate to be the king and queen of our lives. More than anything, we want to be in charge, and we do not want to be accountable to anybody for what we do. We want to set the standards. We want to set the rules. We want everyone else to follow our laws. This passage diagnoses that thing that's in us, but then it also gives us the promise that heals us. The diagnosis is this, the flesh. Several times in this passage, Paul uses that term, the flesh. And he doesn't mean our skin. He means our human nature that is hostile to God and God's laws. Paul is saying that when you and I are born, there is something in us that screams no to being accountable to God. We only want to be accountable to our desires. We only want to follow what comes out of our heart. We are born with a predisposition to reject God and his laws. This passage says this, for to set the mind on the flesh, there's that word, the flesh, to set the mind on the flesh is death, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, some, some say, listen, that's not who my God is. But here's the thing you got to understand. You've just created a God in your own image. If you're, if you're rejecting this picture of God, your God is someone that you've created. And what we're doing here is we're saying there is a God that is much bigger than all of us. And we are at odds with him because we want to be on his throne. He is righteous, meaning everything about him is perfect. He makes all those laws because... He is perfect in his character. And so he can't overlook how we reject his law. And he's just. And so he can't let infractions go. When, when, when righteousness is broken, he must deal with it. He must punish it. And that leads us to this place where we are dead spiritually, we're dead physically, and we're dead eternally. Spiritual death, we're separated from God. We're born into this world at odds with God's path for thing, things because we want our path. We want to be the ruler of our lives, and that sets everything in motion in a negative tra trajectory. It says that we're headed towards a path of condemnation. And what happens when we die is that our bodies become separated from our spirits, and that was never meant to happen. 
And if we die in that state, we'll be eternally separated from God and all the righteousness and justice and love and goodness that he wants to bring into this world. We get separated from that. And that is our natural human condition. That is our natural human condition. There's something in us that wants to reject the reality of God. It's a little bit like Haru. Every pamphlet that Haru Anoda ignored, he, he rejected a real reality and sank into a false reality. Every year he held out the separation between him and what's true grew apart. And every person he killed, the penalty became greater. Now I know you say, John, I didn't come to church to get beat up. You just took me pretty low. And don't worry, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to lift you up. But here's the thing. If the doctor doesn't tell you the real condition that you have, the treatment will not make any sense. If we don't talk about who we really are as humans, God's promises to us won't make any sense. Because the cure is this, freedom in Christ. Freedom through Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The promise of, pre of freedom offers us two things. First of all, it's the pardon from the penalty that's over us. Pardon from the penalty that's over us. But the second thing is that a person with power now lives in us. So let's tackle those two things. First of all, the pardon from the penalty that's over us. Because God loves us, he sees the condition that we're in. He sees the destiny that we're headed towards. And he says, I love them and I want to free them even at great cost to myself. They're the offenders. I'm the innocent party, but I'm going to take the brunt of this. And so God the Father sends God the Son into this world to live a perfect life and send Jesus as a substitute. Jesus was born as a human, fully God and fully man, and lived a sinless life. What that means is he kept all of God's rules. Every decision he made was centered on God the Father. He never took his eyes off what God the Father wanted for him. And yet every action he did was done out of love for neighbor. So it wasn't that just I said he kept the law, he fulfilled the law. He was God's character lived out on earth. He lived out God's vision for righteousness, justice, goodness, mercy, and love perfectly. No infractions against him for breaking God's law. He upheld it with perfection. And yet when Jesus goes to the cross, he dies as if he is a law breaker for you and for me. The penalty for your and my sin is put on him on the cross. The wrath of God is poured out on him instead of on us. The punishment for law breaking goes against Jesus and not you and me. And that's where the pardon from the penalty over you comes from. Verse 1 starts off with a bang. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
This is called the atonement. It's when Jesus didn't atone for his sins, he atoned for your sins. And now you're free if you're in him. Your sin was dealt with. The condemnation that you deserve was dealt with. You are free. Someone say amen. 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 Do you see the implications of that? Can you see what God is holding out to you in the promise of freedom? Your failures to follow Jesus don't define you because you're not condemned. If you know Jesus Christ, your self-centeredness is not your identity before God because you're not condemned. If you have faith in the Lord, your lack of love doesn't exclude you from his love because Jesus was excluded for you. If you believe the gospel, your law-breaking does not condemn you. You are free. Because Jesus Christ died in your place and paid the penalty for you. That means you can live a life where you do no penance. There's no need to do any penance. There's no need to work your way back in with God because Jesus has traded places with you. He was excluded for you so that you could be in. And so when you sin, you repent, you turn away, but there's no need to grovel and go through some ritual ceremony to make yourself clean because Jesus makes you clean. It also means that God is not deliberating on you. Many of us feel like, man, you know, the jury's out with God on me. And we live our lives just wondering, what does God think about me? Well, what God thinks about you is that you should be condemned, but he condemned Jesus for you, so now you're free. So the jury is no longer out on you. What's come back and what's the sign over you is no condemnation. In Christ, you are free from the penalty of sin. You are free. That's the promise of freedom. But there's more. Not only are you free from the penalty of sin, but you've also been set free from the power of sin. Because a person with power now lives in you. Yeah, that's right. A person with power now lives in you. Verse 11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Chad, Carol, Tony, Ted, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is a new power living in you, and that power comes from a person, and it's the same person whose power raised Jesus from the dead, and that person with power is the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit of God now lives in you. And first of all, just the fact that he's there is proof that you do, in fact, have a restored relationship with God. Because God wouldn't put himself in you if he was still mad at you and wanted to condemn you. When you get Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit, and when you get the Holy Spirit, you get Jesus. It's a package deal. And that enables us to walk by the Holy Spirit's power. You see, what God is trying to do and put his Holy Spirit in you is what we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. 
He wants to bring righteousness to expression in your life. I mean, you're freed from having been unrighteous, and you're declared righteous, even though you're guilty, because Jesus fulfilled the law for you, but God also wants to bring the law to expression in you so that you actually begin to live out God's righteousness and justice and love and mercy right here on these streets and in our neighborhood and in our city. Verse 4 says that God sent his son who paid the price in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, not over us, in us, in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus fulfilled the law for us, so law-breaking no longer defines us, but the spirit works God's character and law in us so God can make himself known through us. This has always been part of God's plan. Some of the greatest scriptures in the Old Testament that were written, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus were born, was born, prophesied about the Spirit coming into people. Ezekiel 36 says, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The Holy Spirit is there to help us learn to submit to God as king and walk in his statutes and be empowered to follow him so that you and I, I mean, we're still us, but with the Holy Spirit living in us, we begin to manifest God's love as we sacrificially love other people. We begin to manifest God's faithfulness as we keep our word. We begin to manifest God's justness as we care for the poor and oppressed on our streets and in our neighborhood. We begin to manifest God's mercy as we forgive our enemies. We begin to bring God's love uh, to expression as we just love our neighbors. And most deeply, a, a humility for us to walk with God. We begin to center our lives around God, our, our money, our relationships, our sexuality. We begin to have new power to do that because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Now, if you're honest, you know you still got some junk in you, right? You still got some stuff in there that you don't want there. And if you try and get it out on your own, you can't do it. I heard an illustration that compares us to a cup. And let's just say that the air in the cup is poisonous. Well, how do you get the air out of the cup? It's still there, no matter what I do or how I shake it, it's still in there. The only way to get the air out of the cup is to pour something new into it. And when the Spirit comes in us, he begins to work in our hearts and work in our lives and fill us up with the things of God so that when we pour ourselves out, the stuff of God comes out of us. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. If you know Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection is at work in your heart. The power of the resurrection is at work in your heart. And the application for you is this. Then set your mind on the things of God. Five times in this passage, Paul brings up this expression, set your mind. In other words, if Jesus has condemned, was condemned for you so you're free, 
If the Spirit now lives in you, so you're, you're free from the power of sin, and he's bringing his righteousness to expression in you, then focus on that. Don't focus on the you you used to be. Don't give yourselves over to the desires you know that God does not approve of. Follow God. Set your mind on the things of Christ. Pray for the Holy Spirit to fill you and help you to be a person who lives out love and goodness and righteousness. Don't make a truce with any sinful pattern in your life. You ever get there where you, you, you're so familiar with sin, you're like, man, I'm just never going to beat this. So you make a truce with it. Don't make any truces. Set your mind on the things of God, the things of the Spirit. Turn away from your sin because your sin does not define you. So why would you let it have power over you? Embrace a new trajectory that God has set you on. Law-breaking was the old you. Separation from God was the old you. Condemnation was the old you. The new you is now freed, pardoned, with a new power living in you. A power that wants to bring righteousness to expression through you. Don't go back. You can imagine Haru, 1974, he finally comes out of the jungle. I can't remember the exact circumstances. But 30 years later, he comes out of the jungle. He's freed. And he actually gets a pardon from the, I can't remember, it's the governor or whoever, whoever was ruling over the Philippines, pardoned him. Because during those 30 years, he had killed about 30 Filipinos after the war was over. And he's pardoned. He's free. He doesn't have to pay the price for what he did. And he goes back home to Japan. Now, how foolish would it have been for Haru to just go, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go back to the jungle. What? You've been freed. You've been pardoned. You've been given a new life. Embrace the life that has been given to you. That's the picture for us today. You have been freed from the penalty of sin. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. When you come to those sinful things in your life, don't make a truce with them. Fight them. Cry out for the Holy Spirit to help you and give you new power. Because God wants to use us. He wants to use us to show the city his love and his goodness and his righteousness and his mercy. And we can't do that on our own. But we can with the power of the Spirit in us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you went through on our behalf. We praise you and we ask that you would make us more like you. We want to live here in this neighborhood as you did, as you would. And we can't do that unless you fill us with your spirit every day and make us more like you. So we ask that you would do that. And in your name we pray. Amen.